Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. My guest today is Laura Cartman, and we talk about her two new scores, one for the latest MCU Marvel film, The Marvels, and the other for American Fiction. These present two drastically different movies, and, not surprisingly, two drastically different scores. We spend most of the time talking about Marvels because, well, that's the one that's, as of now, out. American Fiction comes out in about a month. You can look at the episode notes for the exact date. Laura's score for the Marvels is really cool, and it took me, after watching the movie, another couple listens to really digest everything. There's so much going on, so much experimentation, diversity of sound and technique. It's awesome to listen to, whereas American Fiction is more restrained in its palette, given that it generally sticks to a jazz style with a number of variations throughout. Really fun talking about both of those. And I will say, while we're talking about the Marvels, there is one very brief spoiler You'll hear a chime, and if you just skip ahead 15 seconds, you'll skip it entirely. And now, of course, you can find out more about Laura by looking at her social media, her website. You can do the same for me. And yeah, I know that normally these come out every two weeks, and this is on the heels of an episode just one week ago. But I had a few too many interviews, and I needed to crank them out a bit. So you'll get one more next week, and then be back on the normal schedule for a little bit. I think I'm gonna take a minor mid-season hiatus, which is wild to say at this point. It feels like we've just started. Probably the end of December. And then eventually get back on track. But that's for the future. Until then, sit back and I hope you enjoy. Laura, thank you so much for joining me today. How have you been? I'm great. It's good to see you, Nick. So you've you've just come off of scoring the Marvels, which came out, as of right now, about four days ago. You've got American Fiction coming out in about a month. Are you taking this time to relax a little bit, or now that those two are in the box, are you keeping moving on to the next project? I actually stumbled my way through composing music this morning, and when I say stumbled, I mean I stumbled because I've been doing, a, I, you know, because the actors were on strike, I did a lot of press for the Marvels, and uh, boy, it, it's it's a lot, you know. So so I've been busy doing other stuff. So it'll feel good to get back to composing. On that, and, and to give everyone a little insight into this, as the actress strike had been going, I had been getting more emails from from studios themselves about talking to composers, which is unusual for me. And so for you, doing more press because of it for the Marvels was that something that you're used to something that you enjoy or was that a bit too much and you're ready to kind of uh, pull away a little bit? I really enjoyed it. And I think it, I think it's good for the community too. listen, nobody here wanted uh, wanted this double strike, but I think it was a nice opportunity to highlight the crafts and then the people who work behind the scenes. And actually we were talking about that with some friends of mine the other day, how, it was nice to hear the process for editors, production designers, you know, visual effects supervisors, composers. And so because we were, you know, we were not on strike, we were able to kind of step in as best we could. 
and do some of that. However, of course, it's always, 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 always better to have actors promoting the films for obvious reasons. So it's good to not have to do it, you know, at least as heavily for American fiction. I totally agree. There are, I think for the normal person, it's it's hard to realize, or maybe you just don't realize just how many people are involved in making a film. And so having that as an opportunity for so many other people to actually be talking about what they're doing and, and things that you as the ordinary listener might not realize, I, th- I think is very cool. I promise we'll get into the Marvels and touch on American fiction, but just because the the guilds and the strikes came up, I know that you're someone who, I've I've seen it on your Twitter, for instance, has talked about wanting a composer's union or raising that idea. Obviously, it's it's had a fraught history for, I mean, 35 years plus, but much longer than that as well. With the the success of those two, the WGA and the SAG strikes, do you think there's a future for a, a composer's guild or union, or is that still something that looks maybe more distant or remote? There are some really complicated issues for us. And I mean, this is a, like, we could take up our whole time talking about this because I've thought a lot about it. Basically, we were ruled against by the National Labor Relations Board because of the package deal, fundamentally, because we will pay out musicians and engineers and everything that goes into making a score on our own. So we were deemed independent contractors and so unable to organize. So I don't think a union's in the cards for us as long as those deals are in place. But when I was governor at the Academy, I saw two things. First of all, everybody else in Hollywood is unaware that we don't have a union, right? They, they think that we are unionized. And other guilds, like, for example, the WGA, the GGA, SAG, collect royalties, right, for their members. But we've got these PROs, performance rights organizations, that collect our royalties. And there are, you know, three or four of them. So I think in some ways that divides our communities. And then plus the wealth, in fact, of our communities goes to these PROs. So I think that's something to look at. I would love to see workplace protections happen, especially for our our younger people who go and working in in studios where they feel unsafe. I would love to see health care. So I think there's some basic things that we can start to come together and do as a community. And I'd be very interested in getting involved in those discussions. I 100% agree. One, that I think no one realizes that everyone else has a a guild except composers. Even the musicians performing, I think, have their own union. But yeah, also those protections, because you see, especially recently, so many news stories and articles about some of what goes on. And it's at least good that that exposure is now there and that we as, as fans are kind of realizing some of these issues, but it's one thing to have them exposed and kind of come out in the open, and it's something more to actually have something done. So I'm here in the camp of whether it's a union, a guild, some bare minimums at least. Yeah. I'm here rooting for y'all. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And hopefully uh, everyone else is listening and feels the same way. And like you said, we, we could be on that for a while. I, I did an, a solo episode kind of on that background, and I droned on for like half an hour. So we'll save that for another day. Okay. But going on to the Marvels just came out. It's a very cool, exciting score. You're mixing all these themes in there. And there's a, a surprising amount of instrumental or sonic palette diversity in there. 
to narrow that down, when you first came onto this project, what were those initial conversations like with the director, Nia DaCosta, and just for you kind of figuring out what is this going to sound like? Well, Nia said she wanted a space opera. So I thought, that's pretty cool. And then she also talked about low voices. Like this is, mm. she she had this idea that that low voices in space would be very cool. So we really started out talking about a lot of vocals. And I put together a vocal session early on where I had three very, very low singers. And then I had an Indian Carnatic singer, a South African singer, an Indonesian singer, people from different vocal traditions. And I put them together and said, listen, don't blend. Let's just see what happens. So I think a lot of those kind of evocative space vocals came out of playing in those spaces. I did another session like that later in London, and then two more subsequent larger choral sessions with that same kind of concept in mind. But we added a bunch of countertenors who are people identify as men singing in their falsetto voices. So it's a very sort of surreal, ethereal sound. Also, a lot of what we talked about, what I talked about initially with Nia, was what does space sound like? I went out and devised a few different solutions for that, which we can get into. But fundamentally, she wanted a new theme also for the Marvels. And mm -hmm. she wanted it to be like an Avenger-style theme because Captain Marvel, which was so great with a great score by Pernar Toprak, she wanted it to not be about any one individual, but about the three of them kind of coming together. And so she wanted a theme that did that as well. The problem with that answer is you, you hit too many different things that I want to cover, and I can't okay. do them all at once. It, it'll be the, the most impossible to follow question in the world. On that last point, that's something that I think a lot of Marvel fans and people that, that are watching these movies think about and talk about uh -huh. on you know, how sometimes there is a lot of thematic coherence and sometimes there isn't. And so when you're approaching this, and obviously the director of any film here, Nia's got her say and, and it's the film that she's creating and, and you're there supporting that. Yeah. But how does the decision of the conversation go on whether to pull in some of the prior themes, the legacy themes, or whether you're just going to move forward and, and create something new instead? I mean, it just depends on the project. On What If, for example, which I also do for Marvel, we play with this all the time. The idea is to play with those themes and to present them as is or modify them or obscure them. So all of that very, very much plays into the What If score. This one was different. I mean, Nia wanted a new score with new themes and, and you know, a new sound. So it just depends on what the people who are working on this want and then how you can best, you know, support those desires, as you said. So going on, on what you had just mentioned and what you'd mentioned previously about creating this new sound and especially creating the sound for space. Yeah. So much of this movie does take place in space. There, there are a lot of elements of kind of the, the awing nature of the cosmos. And you go back to 2001 and probably even films before that, and, and you have all of these very classic films that in a lot of ways define what we think of as the music for space. Right. And it's really easy, I think, to follow those paths, do something that the audience will be familiar with, but maybe overly so as well. So in this film, how, how do you strike the balance of something that for the listener 
feels evocative of space, but doesn't feel like something that we've been hearing for the last 50 years. I'll give you sort of a two-part, a long two-part answer. The first part is the departures, which are creating these kind of vocal textures that are multicultural, that really are these combinations of different world musics. The second was I actually commissioned sonifications from a a really interesting composer, computer data, computer, what am I saying? Composer, <laughs> computer data, that's hard to say, scientist, Christina Tallon. And what that means is that you basically map data in space and then, mm. then transcribe it and then create MIDI data out of that. And so I gave her a few plot points in the film and she created, she got that data and translated that into MIDI and then we created sounds out of that. And then the third sort of part of that was working with Evelyn Glennie, who's a um, Dame Evelyn Glennie, who's an amazing, amazing percussionist. And one of the extraordinary things about Evelyn Glennie is that she is uh, profoundly deaf. She plays and she hears with her body. So often Mm -hmm. she'll play barefoot and literally feel the sounds vibrating up through her feet. When you're in space, according to Nia, there is no sound, but sound can vibrate against an object, right? So it can vibrate against a human body or a spaceship or another kind of matter. So this idea of feeling sound rather than hearing sound was really organic to the way that Evelyn makes music. So, so that was a big part of it. Now, having said that, there was a point in the film, and now I can talk about it because it's out, where Carol is landing on the planet Tarnax and she's in the spaceship and she kind of takes off and it goes through the thing. And that was a really neat moment for me to compose because I did what you were saying. I did. I mean, it has the voices in it. It's got Evelyn Glennie and it's got that stuff, but it's also got that like optimistic American view of, you know, yeah, <laughs> let's go out into space, you know, and the theme, da, 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 you know, like over the whole thing, the 12 French horns and she's flying through space. And I loved doing that too. Other places were were using these kind of more off-center ideas and kind of weirder environments. You know, when she lands on another planet very early where Darben finds a bangle and, you know, and other points when she's kind of floating out in space, there's a loneliness to that moment, I think, that I wanted to capture with some more eerie sounds. But, you know, the fun thing about scoring these kinds of films and these kinds of projects is that, yeah, sometimes you want to hit the mark. You know, sometimes you want to just feel that feeling. You know, and I think that's cool. I, that, I love that. I want to do that, you know, as well as all of these other, like, more experimental textures. It's funny you mentioned the eeriness. A lot of times when I'm watching a movie in preparation for an interview, I, you know, I, I have my little notepad and I'm, I'm writing, but it's in, it's in the darkness, so I, what right. I write is illegible. Right. But one of the things that I wrote was about you have this sort of eerie cosmic feel, and it yeah. was something that I think struck me as... It felt right, yeah. But also, didn't feel familiar. It was it. It felt unusual in the moment as well. And I, the I whole first really act is like that, that right? The yes, whole first yes. part of the film, whole first reel, I should say, not even first act, first reel, where you know she's floating out in space. She and Monica are not really connecting. You know, they're landing on the planet. She's attacked. The switches are happening. Nobody knows what's going on. You have all of these kinds of scenes. Kamala kind of flipping through space and coming up to uh, Nick Fury. And that's the whole beginning of the film. So 
I definitely leaned into that. But then as Carol, as they move through that, this sort of space of figuring out what's going on with their bodies and the switching, things begin to be a little bit more grounded, I think, in a way for the three of them. So I, so that's why I kind of started mm. to introduce like that, that scene is the beginning of real too. When she's flying and going to Tarnax before the negotiation with Darben, that felt right for that moment. And I was glad to write it. It sounds like you had a lot of agency in creating the sound and the sonic palette. And I think that's something that maybe people don't necessarily expect from, I'd say, superhero films more broadly. I I think a lot of people are quick to say that they all fall into one bucket. And so... It's just not true. It's like, oh, it's I was just, gonna, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's, it's just very completely much not, not true. Here. And I'll tell you, I know it also from working on What If, when I really am listening to other the work that other people have done. And it's, believe me, it's not in one bucket. You've got Ludwig Gorenson, you've got Michael Giacchino, you've got Pinar, you've got Chris Beck. These are all really different composers who approach the genre differently. And the thing about these Marvel projects, you know, this is my third one now. And two series, which, I mean, what if is, is expansive? We've got season two coming out. I did Miss Marvel as well. And you've got a lot of room in these places creatively. Creatively. I think once you come up with like that theme, because everybody needs the theme or a series of themes, you know, mm-hmm. everybody needs the theme. And once you have the theme, you can do a lot. And there's a lot, a lot of room. And I can tell you is... I'm always looking for spaces to be weird, and there's a lot of space to be weird in Marvel. Lots and lots and lots. I think that's that's definitely true, and I, I think as well, it seems like that's increasingly so. But with the Marvels, did you ever feel like there was a constraint there? Or... No, I've never felt it, ever, on any Marvel project that I've worked on. Here's been my experience. They love music. They love big music. They like maximal music. They like music that's thematic and emotional. They like music that's, uh, they just love music. So it's like as somebody who came from a lot of independent film and documentary, where people are always telling you less is more, working on a Marvel project, people are telling you more is more. And I love that. (laughs) That's that's awesome. So, I mean, it, it seems like this gives you the chance as well to flex your, well, you know, we'll call them your weird muscles. Yeah. Is that right? No, for sure. I mean, like basically on something like this, you sit around, and you think for a long time, well, what does space sound like? And how do I reflect that? And then it's like, let me try this. And I, I did the voices. And then I thought something that there's something else I need. Like I need rumbles. I need weird things in the bottom. And it's, Hey, you know, maybe I should go record Evelyn and see how that works. And you know, there's like, all of that is there. And then of course, There are these spaces, and it's the first time I've actually talked about this because we had, you know, everything was under wraps for so long, but when when Darben disintegrates, that's an aleatoric cue, right? So that basically what we did is I gave Mm -hmm. each section of the orchestra a part of Darben's cue. So you had in all the in the brass, and then you had the da 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 in all the strings, and then so everybody was doing something different, and we just said go, and then Nora, my wife who conducted the score, would just make it louder and softer, and it was just cacophony. It was absolutely fantastic, and it, you know it's there in the movie. 
That's awesome. And, and I think that sort of concept is something that maybe will surprise people to hear about. But yeah. like it's it's so cool that you're you're given that sort of latitude to experiment, be weird. And I can tell seeing your face, hearing you talk about it, have fun with the score, too. Oh, it was great. I loved I loved every minute of working on that project. Every minute of it. That's awesome. And this is these are things that have come up quite a few times, both in my questions and your, and your answers is the idea of the themes that we're hearing. I'll say the the new theme for the Marvels is one I think's not just particularly appropriate, but also very memorable. That was like stuck in my head for, I don't know, the next two days after I saw the movie. And so is there any sort of special process that you, you do or you take to sit down and, and come up with, compose one of these themes? When you do these themes, when you create the suites for any project, but certainly for Marvel, you basically have to have a theme and you've got to take it through paces, right? Mm. And the idea is that you've got to be able to show Nia and Kevin and others that the theme can exist in a multiple of dramatic situations, a multiplicity of dramatic situations. So this particular theme starts out very mysteriously, right? It's spacey. You've got the strings sliding around doing glissandos. You've got these kind of broken allophones and glockenspiels and all these weird kind of metallic sounds doing little portions of the theme. You've got some of the vocals that come in. And so you show the theme in that sort of space. Then, of course, the strings start to come in. So you start the build, which is something I played a lot with in Ms. Marvel, which I really like this idea of doing mm. a straight build. Like, how can you continue to grow and grow and grow without actually changing musical material that much? And it comes out of, like, Ravel's Bolero, right? It's like, how can you do one of these slow builds that you can do it dynamically, you can do it orchestrationally with repetition? But that's what gives it that kind of energy until it winds and winds and winds and winds and winds and winds. So you can't almost hear that one more time. And then it breaks into the, into the main theme, you know, with the 12 French horns and then kind of continues to put that theme through the, its kind of action adventure paces. So the idea is you, you can show it in these various ways, in these various environments to show the people that you're working with that this theme is a good one and can survive a movie or ultimately a franchise if that's what it turns into. Interesting. That is very interesting to hear. And I do want to move to American fiction really oh, quick. Great. But before that, one thing I did want to mention and raise is the initial sequence on Aladna, which is a planet where everyone communicates by singing. And yeah. on the score release, it's like this really complex, moving seven minute or so cue. Yeah. So I wanted to just hear really quick how much of that was coming from you. I, you know, I don't know your your part in the actual vocals as well because yeah. you have a number of, of those performances too. So basically it started with two songs by James Murphy. What you see in the film is Feraladna, do-da-da-da-da-da. So that James Murphy did, and he also did the duet between Carol and Prince Jan. And, you know, those had been various lengths through various iterations of the film. I was brought in to work on this, I'd say in June. Mm -hmm. And I created all the orchestrations and all the surrounding vocals for those two things, as well as uh, the, you know, going to the galaxy, going, going, going. 
with that whole march that was all me and then I created the music in the banquet and we also I recorded the singers because of course if you have a planet where everybody's singing all the time Think about any film, right? Any film has ADR, right? Dialogue replacement, where, mm-hmm. you know, you create a, a crowd scene that gets done in post-production, right? So all of those those scenes were done in London with my choir. But with a choir like that, you can't just say, oh, gee, just do background vocals. So I had to feed individual lines to all of those people. So so when you hear the soundtrack, you know, we did sort of like a, a cute mix for the soundtrack where you hear, you hear stuff really in the forefront that you might not hear in the course of the film. Yeah. And the attention, da, 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 that was mine too. So I created, you know, probably 75% of what you hear there. And then James Murphy did those, the kind of the meat of those two songs in, in pre-production because they had to shoot to them. Yeah, and that was... I mean, it's a fun sequence both in the film, but yeah. also in the score because I think it it very much leans into I don't want to say like wacky because that's not yeah. quite right. No, it, I mean um, I think it is wacky, and and I came up with all of these ideas, and Nia and I discussed this extensively. Like, if you're on a musical planet, like okay, what happens? Is there an orchestra playing? Are there bands in various places? Are there DJs spinning set Mm. pieces? When Prince Jan enters, does he have four entrances? I would imagine he would have at least four, if not eight, for various costume changes, you know? Um, (laughs) I had this idea that there were different orchestras and different kinds of ensembles. So, like, when they're marching through town, they have, like, percussion, right? So they had world percussion. So... This idea is that and that on this planet, there's every kind of imaginable music and even music that we can't imagine. And for those of you who are really into this, once you get it at home, if you go into the banquet scene and kind of press pause, you'll see in the background instruments that were constructed. So all of the source music is really coming from these like wacky instruments that they have on Aladdin. So I think wacky is a great word. And I think Nia would like it too. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'll, I'll uh, rescind this thing. It's, it wasn't right. I do appreciate that sort of like level of thought and detail yeah. on things that I'll tell you, I didn't notice those instruments in the background whatsoever. So next time I see it and, and hopefully other people after they listen will They'll take a look out and get to see those wacky instruments. Yeah, but you'll see the vi- you'll see the violin instrument. You'll see a tuba-like instrument. Mm-hmm. You'll see saxophones. I mean, they're these kind of wavy pieces. But you know, if you look at them, you'll see them. Oh, awesome! It's great to hear. And like I mentioned before, I think it comes through in the voice as well. But like, definitely just talking how much you enjoyed this project. Oh, I and I think it. it really comes through in hearing the music as well. And I I talked to Brian Tyler earlier this year about his score for the Super Mario Bros. movie, and it was the same thing. He was, like, giddy, and it was like he was a little kid first playing those games when he was talking about those. So yeah. I, I think it comes through in the music so well. But moving to, to American Fiction, which is your other score for Q4 of 2023, comes yeah. out next month. That's right. That is an entirely different film, entirely different sound. Very jazzy, very piano-based instead. So can you tell me a little bit about how you came onto the onto that palette and that style as well for that film? Yeah, I mean, the lead character, his name is Thelonious Ellison, and his nickname is Monk. 
So for those of you jazz fans, you know Thelonious, Thelonious Monk, incredible composer and pianist and very unique sound. So we knew that we wanted the score to pay homage to this great jazz musician and for it to lean into jazz. But, you know, it also had to live in the world of film scoring because it is a drama. It's a comedy. It turns on a dime kind of stylistically. Not stylistically. It doesn't leave the world of jazz, but things happen that are very different in the film. Mm. It's, you know, acerbic satire one minute. It's high comedy the next minute. And it's a, a family drama with tragedy the next minute and he falls in love and all this kind of stuff happens to him professionally. So all of those things had to be hit. And so it's really this hybrid, I think, of jazz and scoring. And the instrumentation, of course, is vastly different from the Marvels. But I grew up playing jazz and classical simultaneously. I studied at Juilliard. I studied classical concert music. And then I would go out at night and play jazz and sing in bars. So, I mean, this this duality was always a part of my life. But, like, there's a lot of jazz in the Marvels, too. You know, Darben's theme is completely jazzy. I hear it as jazz. And so it seeps into even my most kind of modernist orchestral writing. But, mm. but yes, indeed, American fiction really focuses on that. And it, it leans into two themes, which is Monk's theme, which is kind of edgy, monkish music, you know, you know, a 5-4 thing with sevenths in the bass. And then the other theme is the family theme, which is this kind of fluid theme. So it's this kind of like almost rubbery theme. And a lot of times in the film, it's with this incredible flute player who's also a scoring intern in my studio, Elena Penderhughes, who's great. She tours with Herbie Hancock. She's amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, she'll play with me, but it won't quite be together, which is mm-hmm. part of the idea behind families. I also had Patrice Rush and the great composer and pianist come in and play a lot of that score as well. So, you know, it's a much smaller score than the Marvels, but it accomplishes, I think, many of the same things but in that you've got a complicated, dramatic arc that needs to be addressed and supported by a score that can roll with the punches of a film. When you're working with those two on this score or other very talented or, or well-known musicians who are coming in to play a particular instrument, how much of their personality would you say is coming through in what they're playing and versus how much of it is you're the composer this is your session they've got to play exactly how you want well i mean again there are continuities between these two projects because mm-hmm. you know it, you're sitting in a room with 100 orchestral musicians they all come at that with a lifetime of experience i in no way ever want to mute somebody's artistic vision right people play and they do things. And if it sounds right, you keep it. I think with Elena and with Patrice and, and the other musicians who, who performed in the film, I give people a lot of leeway to do things. And then a lot of times people will give me choices if we're recording remotely mm-hmm. or the case with Elena. She was here. We would work stuff out together. There's some improvisatory sections, but when you're doing a film score that's jazz-based, 
you've got to let people improvise, but you also have to be able to have the ability to edit it and to move in and out of dialogue. Because when somebody's improvising, the nature of improvisation is to just go. So for example, if someone's doing a solo, I mean, this is, this is a, probably a better answer to your question. And let me just think of something for a second. If you've got, you know, um, where, you know, whatever, you got something like that, that's not going to work. And the reason why that's not going to work is because there's, there's no room for anything, a dialogue mm. or anything that might happen. So if somebody's improvising a solo like that, I might say, do it more gesturally and then out. So I might then try this. Did it. You know, but it indeed up. So you still get that feeling of improvisation, but you've got the space to be able to move stuff around and really accommodate it to picture and dialogue. You'd mentioned that the improvisation is is key in, or I I suppose like comes very naturally in, in any sort of jazz based score. Which for anyone like you listen to jazz, you ever see a jazz band, it makes so much sense. Yeah. But when you have a score that isn't jazz-based, is there ever room for improvisation in there as well? Yeah. When we did the Darben's Destruction, I mean, that's improv. Mm. That's the same thing, where basically you're giving somebody what we call box notation. You're giving them sort of pitches to play and saying, okay, I need you to do this for 10 bars, and I need you to start soft and get louder, and whatever order you do it or rhythm, that's up to you. So. I do try to create spaces in that kind of work. It's aleatoric composition, it's called. But you try to create spaces where people can do stuff because sometimes, especially in film scores and scores that are recorded to click, you want to work against that Mm -hmm. in that to make something really very musical and not always feel like this is going somehow in the background, right? I think about that kind of stuff a lot, yeah. Can you expand a little more on that idea of going against the click? Yeah. I mean, I think the really good scoring musicians know how to do it. But I mean, I write very gesturally, right? So if I'm writing a flute, if I've got like a, I mean, now I'm making up a cue, but let's say I have a string chord and on top of it, I've got a flute going, you know, now I'm singing jazz. You don't want to go one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five. I mean, you could, and it could be written out and notated that way, but you might just want to kind of, you know, notate it that way and say, make this more gestural or feel free rhythmically. And so then a good musician will ignore the click, especially if you've got someone who can conduct and bring them back in at the right time. Very interesting. Well, Laura, it was very cool seeing the Marvels. Like I said, I haven't seen American Fiction yet, but I was lucky enough to hear it. Two very different projects, very different scores. I think having them come out at almost back-to-back is a very cool showcase of your breadth, your diversity as as a composer. So Thank you. It's really awesome to hear, and of course, they're both getting a lot of attention for some of the the best of the year as well so i don't know how much you pay attention to that but if you don't that's what uh, a lot of people are saying at least so i really 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 appreciate it i'm i you know i love this work i've been doing it for a long time 
And I think the thing that's cool about both of these projects is they really allow me to be me. Mm. And I worked with filmmakers who embrace that. And, you know, it's really a privilege to be able to do that, especially in association with the film project and projects both that are excellent in their own very different ways. So, Nick, I appreciate the interview. And Laura, once again, I, I appreciate you coming to chat uh, with me about both of those. My pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, everybody.